Do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Here we go. My name's Todd. And this is Kathy. Welcome back to another episode of Zen Parenting Radio. This is podcast number 654. Why listen to Zen Parenting Radio? Because you'll feel outstanding. And always remember our motto, which is the best predictor of a child's well-being, is a parent's self-understanding. On today's show, we have a friend, a friend who we just met. <laughs> But um, Ben Feller is his name, and I'm going to introduce him in a second about who he is and what he does. Uh, but he came to us through another friend of Kathy's and mine, uh, Debbie Reber. Sweetie, who's Debbie Reber again? She is the author of Differently Wired, and uh, she runs the podcast called Tilt Parenting. And we've had her on the show. She's been at our conference. She was in our virtual summit. And so we really Did she speak her. at our... She spoke yeah. at our conference, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She spoke okay. at the live conference and the summit. Um, and she's really, you know, such a, um, a, a place for, for talking about neurodivergence, talking about self-aware parenting, talking about um, how we can, you know, create community um, when it comes to our kids. So we have deep respect for her. And um, and she and she and Ben, who we have today, they, they have a history. They've known each other a long time. They have. They have. Um, Debbie Reber, she is um, somebody we love. Right. She's the cat's meow, sweetie. <laughs> Can you come up with another like no, bad no. way of? She's the bee's knees. Yeah, they're all bad. What does that mean? I don't. Know. I don't know either. Uh, so Ben Feller is a communications advisor and former award-winning chief White House correspondent for the Associated Press during his years covering President Barack Obama and George W. Bush. He helped lead the White House press corps, traveled aboard Air Force One, and was honored as a master of deadline reporting. Mm. Now he's writing about his personal passion being a dad, which is what brings him here. And no topic is off limits. And we might ask you some questions that you get asked a lot regarding your experience in the White House. Uh, But first and foremost, Ben Feller, thank you for showing up. Say hello, Ben. Hello, Todd. Hello, Kathy. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And I will endorse the fact that Debbie Reber is the bee's knees. I don't know what it means either, but I'm with you. Um, Okay. So, sweetie, where do you want to start? Should we start with uh, writing books or should we talk about... Well, yeah. Let me just, let me dive into that because like Todd said, I do want to get into your history because it is so interesting, but but, but I'm going to kind of start at the beginning instead, or I should say at the end, which is you've written a children's book and it's a beautiful children's book, um, which is... You know, we were just talking about why we were having you on the show, but one of the reasons was because you have a beautiful children's book that I think a lot of people, especially the people who listen to this show, will really, really appreciate. We should probably that. name the book. Yeah, please. Did you did you talk about the book? I did not. It's called Big Problems, Little Problems. Yeah. Um, and it is a wonderful book. And I guess let's start here, Ben. Why do you, why'd you write it? Well, it's really a personal project and a personal passion for me that has turned into something bigger. Um, I, it is rooted in the idea that if we could make the world a little easier, if we could uh, find ways to help our kids deal with what seemed to them like big frustrations and make them little problems, then we'd be doing a great job as parents. Um, the, uh, the genesis of this book really came from raising my son. I'm um, a dad in, in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, Sam is blessed to have two wonderful parents. Um, my way with him in, in our home, I'm a single dad, was to see my son get overwhelmed mm. when he was young by things that we as parents know are not big deals. They're just not. If you can't zipper your coat, if you can't find a toy, if you can't remember the thing you were going to say before you left for school, uh, that's all you know as a kid. It can be overwhelming. And rather than tell him to calm down, uh, and, and preach to him. Uh, I thought it was important for me to find a way to show him, you know, to your point about a parent's self-awareness, mm-hmm. self-understanding. And so we got into a pattern of trying to make big problems into little problems. What does that even mean? Why is that important? So he feels empowered. So he can understand how to solve and self-correct himself. And as we did this, it became um, a really virtuous part of life that I was actually teaching my son how to take the world and make it easier. Mm. And the the reason, um, the real answer to to why I decided to write it, Todd, was it's one thing to have the idea of of coping mechanisms for your kid that you can see and feel. But when I got caught up in life and I got immensely frustrated one day in particular, and Sam looked at me and it's a young kid, he's in his car seat. And he saw how frustrated I was. And he said, daddy, 
don't get frustrated, mm. big problem or little problem. And I looked at him through the rearview mirror and we, we locked eyes and I thought, okay, number one, my God, he's really listening. Mm. And number two, I should hear him because he's right. Mm. I mean, the kid is right. He's five years old and he's processing frustration and helping the parent learn how to remember to have patience and perspective. That's when the writer in me said, I think I have something here that's worth sharing. And that was when I moved it from really a, a daily parenting life to a book. Mm. And, you know, I'm going to like jump really deep already because the, I, that's what you do. <laughs> sorry. I just got to jump in. <laughs> but I, what is so interesting is that there's so many levels to that because there's, like you said, you know, your son is basically saying, this is something that I learned from you and it's, you don't need to get frustrated either. And, and I think a lot of times it, it sounds so good in theory and it sounds so good. And we're like, wow, you know, they really understand this, but the deeper level is it gives us an opportunity to even look at what we perceive to be big things, you know, like, how do I say this differently? Like work is a big deal and work can be stressful. And, but we can also make work our number one priority and forget that really our number one priority is our relationships and the people we love. And, um, I'm using David Brooks analogy, the getting our loves out of order where, you know, we, we basically focus too much on, other people's perception of us or how we're doing in work or climbing the ladder. And our children really bring us back to that place of what is most important right now? Why am I getting frustrated about this when really everything that I want is sitting in the car seat behind me? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, did, am I going too deep for this Ben? Or do no, you- no, you're not going too deep. And I would, I would add to that depth. I hope in, in two ways. I think if you, it's one thing to try to adopt a mindset in life. Mm-hmm. That matches what you're saying. How do I go about my life with an, an, an intentionality to to have perspective, to understand uh, what's important today, the most important work I'm doing, uh, health, uh, providing, protecting my family, you know, being happy and and running your life that way. That's an achievement to do that, particularly in, a, in an ongoing pandemic environment where life feels so tough. But I think that the second level and the one that trips up most of us is even if you have that. It's tough to constantly have perspective, to constantly say it could be worse, it could be worse. Because in the moment where the bad thing happens, uh, you know, a, a, somebody runs a red light as you're about to cross the street and you're like, gosh, three more seconds, that could have been really, really dangerous. Mm-hmm. Over and over again, those moments happen. And so how do you take that moment, breathe and move on in five seconds mm-hmm. instead of 15 minutes or three days? How do you how do you process perspective right away because otherwise those little things add up and suddenly you're frustrated, you're angry, you take it out on the wrong person, you're distracted. And then to your point, Kathy, then you're walking down the street holding your kid's hand and you haven't said anything in four blocks because you're so pissed off about that small thing. That's the real challenge. And I'm not saying that I've overcome this, but I am determined to keep working on it. Well, it's funny, like priorities. I'm glad we're starting with priorities, sweetie. I'm glad you brought that up. So Ben was on another podcast, uh, Men Living Does Their Own Podcast, called If You've Come This Far. And on that podcast, it was hosted by Chris and Sean, two friends of mine. Chris mentioned in the interview uh, uh, about priorities. And I think as most parents are like, our priorities are our children, obviously. Yet Chris, I love when Chris owned this. He's like... I know my kids are most important, but sometimes when I have an opportunity to sit with my kid or finish and eat a work email, although I know that connecting with my child at this moment at 5.30 p.m. when I've already put in a full day's work, yet I still sometimes choose work over kids. And I can identify with Chris's story. I do that sometimes too. I love deleting emails, responding to emails. And sometimes it's at the expense of playing a board game with my kid or something like that. So, um, and you know, it's not about perfection. It's about progress and self-compassion, all that other stuff. I just wonder, so David Brooks wrote that thing and Kathy brings it up all the time because it's so powerful when our loves are out of order. Ben Feller, are your loves in order? Mm -hmm. And if so, how often? I would say to you with pride that my loves are are more in, in order now than they have been any time in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely, it's a work in progress. Mm-hmm. Um, but the book is a manifestation of of how and why my my loves are in order. Mm-hmm. Um, to to understand that raising this human being is the most important part of my life, and not just taking pride in how I'm doing, but taking pride in how I'm growing and, and listening and learning 
to him and, and from him. That's that's the centerpiece, and it's going fast. Mm-hmm. He's about to turn 11. Mm-hmm. Um, we joke about you know when he's going to stop wanting to hang out with me. <laughs> I mean, I know it's coming. And so pr- from a personal point of view, that's the centerpiece, and that's that's my number one love. I have a lot of other loves, and some of them are um, uh, you know are my interest and and certainly my profession. But you know, self love is I think kind of underrated, and I've been working on that a lot too. And I mean by that not how much do you like yourself, but how much are you investing in the things that make you healthy and happy, because that affects everything else. And that is a massive priority for me right now, and has been coming into this year. So in that sense, uh, yeah, I think. I think my priorities are right. But the other thing too, you know, Todd, is that if you want to respond to that work email or you have to, because you know, something has to get done by six o'clock because three other people need to see it. And you, you know, what I do in the situations is just say, Hey, Sam, something just came in, buddy. I just, I need about 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And now he understands what 10 minutes is. Mm -hmm. And I try to keep it to 10 minutes. So that's really not a enormous sacrifice because, you know, in that moment you have to deal with something. Mm -hmm. I think, if you don't address it, you don't communicate it, and you do it a lot, that's the problem. Mm. Well, and, you know, when we talk about as parents showing up for our kids, like, in the most whole way possible, I'm using, you know, W-H-O-L-E, you know, like, we're, it, part of that is that our work is a part of who we are. So it's not all of it. You know, we have the priorities in order, but just what you said about sometimes things do come up and there's a reality to life about that. I think it's when we're using work to distract us or because we believe that we're on some certain path that is going to make us happier. Or it's like, it's, it gets so nuanced when we talk about this because he, like, you know, my kids, there are times when there's things, you know, Todd has to travel for work and he's had to miss things or not be around. And so it's like this understanding of this is true and this is also true, which is every time I can be here, you know, I will be because this is what I want to do. But there's also this other piece. And I guess that leads me into this um, because this is, you know, like you said, part of the reason you wrote the book as as a single dad, when you do have your son, when you've got when you're with him and I don't, you know, is it and I don't like the word easier, but does it feel more focused where you're like, this is my time with him. And so I, I have carved out this time, or do you kind of feel like you're still kind of, there's it, um, you know, it's, it's very difficult to like kind of shut this part of your life down and move into this part. Like what's, what's your rhythm with that? So, you know, it's impossible, I think, to have it that clean. Yeah. There are things that come up, um, professionally, family, uh, logistically, you know, and, and I live in New York city where nothing is easy, you know? Mm -hmm. So stuff always will interfere with that time, the Sam time. But that said, I do very much. And as does his mom try to carve out the time we have with him for the time with him. Mm -hmm. So we'll think about those days, um, just intuitively as Sam time and not double book and not plan other things and and know that those are going to be times when we take him to water polo, read with him, uh, talk about, you know, whatever his on his mind about the, you know, his questions about the X-Men and I never know the right answer. (laughs) Like, that's what we're doing. It's not, those things are not in competition with four other things that I've set up because I would never set it up that way. Mm -hmm. Now, as he gets older and his interests change and he gets more independent, he's not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. But then that time is going to be, well, dad and mom, I'd kind of like to do these other things mm-hmm. with this window of time. And I know that that's coming, but I, I've for years and years set it up to the point where I know that that's time with him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he, when he was very little, we have this sort of famous video in our family, I think it was on a labor day. And he said, no phones, no phones, mm-hmm. you know, and, Usually the reason when he saw me with the phone was I was not doing work and I wasn't texting friends or checking the Yankee score. I was actually taking a photo or video of him. Mm -hmm. So even that was about him, but he wanted total attention, you know, when he was really little. And so now every once in a while, if we're watching a movie and I check email, um, he'll he'll look over and say no phones because he wants full attention. And I think he kind of knows, do you have to look right now? Mm -hmm. Probably not. And, uh, and look, if I do, I say, yeah, I do. He's like, okay, I'm not mm-hmm. going to push it, so, but he gets it. And, and that's, that's how we've set it up. I'd say mm-hmm. that. I love the fact that, uh, what's your son's name? Sam? Sam. Sam. I love how he's asking for what he wants. A lot of children, you know, a lot of 
structures are framed where, you know, the kid's not supposed to ask for what he wants, especially if it's at the expense of upsetting his dad. And I'm just glad that you're raising your son to use his voice in a, in a productive way. Well, and can I even kind of bringing all of this conversation together, like, you know, Todd was saying about, you know, sometimes it's easier to check email than it is to be with our kids. And, you know, you're just giving this example. And sometimes we aren't even aware that we're doing it. We're, we're so, there's such a like a repetitive nature to just opening your phone and seeing what's on there. And there's, and I've, I, I, some, and kids have this too, you know, like I, sometimes with, with my girls, um, we have discussions about phone and technology all the time, but they don't even know they're doing it. Like they're just, we're like on autopilot, you know, checking our phones. And so it's really nice as a family, if we have a good working conversation around it where we're not judging each other to remind each other, you know, and that's kind of, and, and there are times like sometimes when my daughter and I are watching something scary, she likes to do word cookies because it keeps her from having to look at the screen. And we have an agreement about it, not an agreement, but I understand it. And I'm not saying no, no phone. Like she, we have discussions and I think the ability to talk about it rather than judge each other for it is really great, especially at the age, you know, that Sam is, because that's when it gets so intense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, to both of your points, I feel strongly that he should always feel comfortable in asking for what he wants. I can't think of a time where I said, you know, I'm too busy to answer that. Um, or, you know, that's not the kind of thing we talk about. That would never happen here. And he knows that. Um, I, I also, you know, I, I worry sometimes we got a new iPad for the first time in years over Christmas and he uses it a lot. And, and I knew that was going to happen. I don't like that moment where I think I've gone too far. I'm doing my thing. I'm making dinner or reading or talking to somebody. And I see he's sort of zoned in and I'll call his name and he can't even look up. And like, I'm, I'm fostering that. Now I think he's, he's on the very low end of the sort of the spectrum of, you know, screen time, but it is something that I need to be more mindful of because I don't like that zone in zone out thing. And, and so it makes me even more mindful, not, not to do that myself. Let's have a conversation. But, you know, I, these things reinforce themselves. Mm -hmm. He said to me the other day, uh, he came home and he took out his lunch and, you know, did the dishes from his lunch, which is his chore and washed his hands and kind of settled in for a snack. And he said, oh, my gosh, I've been so busy. I didn't even ask you, how was your day? Mm -hmm. and, I, and I thought it's, it's always kind of funny when a kid says something that sounds like an adult. Totally. You know, and I, and I thought my day. <laughs> My day was great, buddy. I could elaborate. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I'm like, I'll just bore the hell out of him with the answer. But it's really nice that you asked. Mm -hmm. You didn't do it in, in to get a reward. Mm -hmm. You did it because it's the right thing to do. And it's and so those are the little moments of conversation. That you think, okay, he's listening. Totally. Yeah, he lends. He he has. You know, he's not doing it because it's the appropriate question to ask. He's probably asking because he's curious. Okay. And I find myself always. It's. I'm always asking my kids about their school day because if I told them about my day, I make up a story that it'd be really boring to them. So part of me is like, I need to figure out a way to, because it's unfair if I'm always asking the questions and I'm not willing to respond with any type of authenticity or like, oh, grown up stuff is so boring. So let's just focus on you. So I kind of feel like it's my job to put it in now that my our kids are older we got 18 17 and 14 year old 19, i don't I, sweetie oh 19 she's, she's she, she just had a birthday um so <laughs> i don't have to like revise the story because they're like little grown-ups right now but i just i think it's an important distinction for us parents to be able to um share part of ourselves we get so focused on molding these young people and forgetting about the best way to mold them is for us to role model what it means to have a frustrating day at work and how you dealt with those frustrations and not tell them just the good parts, but also, you know, sometimes dad gets really mad and frustrated, which is kind of part of your book also. Well, it's, that's a, it's a truly important point you're making, Todd, because I think what we can do as grownups is presuppose that the kids who are asking aren't going to like the answer because in our mind, we're, we're projecting that they're already bored and we haven't even told them. Mm -hmm. So let's give them a little bit of benefit of the doubt. But the second thing we have to do is translate our day into language and stories that make sense for them, not revise or make up things. Uh, but think about the audience of the kid. And this, this is where the parenting and the book leads over to my work as a journalist and as a communications consultant, because I've made my living on translating. Mm -hmm. We're all translators as communicators. And so for a, for a quick example, last year, the company that I worked for 
went through um, some pretty troubling leadership challenges internally, where one group of partners uh, got into a business dispute with the company that owned the firm. And so they decided to leave. Mm -hmm. And there were uh, another cadre of folks who decided to stay. And I was sort of in the middle of those two groups as a partner and thinking, trying to understand what was happening, make sense of it. Um, there were personalities involved. There were legalities involved. Well, how the hell do you explain that mm -hmm. to a kid? But to not talk about it means to cleave off something that big is happening in daddy's life. Mm -hmm. So I could just say good mm -hmm. when you ask how your day was. So we were walking down the, the, the street and I found a way to talk about it. Like there's two groups. Mm. One group wants to do A, one group wants to do B. Your daddy's going to have to make a choice soon. And I'm thinking through and I, I gave him and he's like, well, why are they so upset? Why, why would they even do that? And I'm like, that's a good statement. Mm -hmm. So already he's getting it. I'm mm -hmm. like, well, there was an agreement that they had and they don't think they kept their word. And, you know, it's important to keep your word. Well, did they or didn't they? Well, it's in dispute. Mm -hmm. So, and, and he got enough of it to know. And so then the next time we talked about it, he's like, so what did you end up deciding on that? Mm -hmm. Was it group A or group B? I'm like, well, I'm still thinking about it. And here's where we are. So he had a framework mm -hmm. there to understand what was going on with me. Now, you wouldn't have to do that to a 19 year old. Mm -hmm. They would know if presuming they're, they're paying attention, right. Uh, they're going to know the names of the players involved. They're going to understand, you know, this is life. This is business disputes happen. So I think that's part of the parent's job. If you want your kids to engage is to not talk to your kids like a grown up. It's just so it's one of these things as a communicator, you see me shaking my head. Like, I can't believe people do that. People do that all the time because there's no book on how to do that. You got to you got to understand and commit to doing that. Mm -hmm. How do I translate this complicated business transaction that involves the rest of my life, my ability to provide to a kid walking to school? Go. Mm -hmm. Well, most parents aren't going to do that. Mm -hmm. You're like, "Ugh, it's it's hell." Yeah. Like, "Oh, that's what you're going to leave your kid with? Yeah. You go to school, you <laughs> And so you got to or you're going to say it in terms of um, what's actually happening and it's going to go over their head mm -hmm. and they might even just pick up stress. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not good either. So you got to put extra work into this. That's, that's one thing. I don't do a lot of things well, but that I do well yeah. is immediately think about how the audience is going to perceive this. Mm -hmm. mm, I love that. And that's your, like you said, that's your skill set. And I love the word translate it because I was going to add that when I'm talking to my kids about my day, I use a lot of feeling about not, not, I don't mean like I'm like, you know, demonstrative. I, I mean, like I'm telling them this is how I felt when this happened. And then somebody called and I was really, you know, it made me anxious. And I use those words because then they realize I'm having the whole scope of feelings during the day that when I say, oh, it's good. Then I think sometimes kids get the perception that, wow, everyone else's day seems to be good. And mine had all these ups and downs. And I love to be like, you know, then I did this podcast. And it was so fun. But then an hour later, I had a phone call and I was so nervous and it was so hard. Like, so my way of translating, because your skill set is, you know, writing and creativity and, and mine is like, you know, recognizing the emotion in each situation. And so the girls will sometimes reflect back to me. I felt the way that you did when you made that phone call yesterday. And I'm like, yes, like I know. Mm. So it's like you, you pick up these ways where just like you said, they relate to you. And this is just another way to be creative. You know, like how do you communicate and how do where, you know, you can use pop culture, you know, like you said, your son loves X-Men and it's like you start to use them even though I don't understand X-Men either. I'm a little better with Marvel, but you know, like you, you start to use those examples of this is how this person felt. And I was feeling like they were. So I just, I think that the, your message of translating to our kids is a huge part of connection. Mm. Well, that's a wonderful story. And again, it goes to, I was thinking, as you told that those moments where things just snap, mm -hmm. right? Like, I mean, snap in a good way where you're just immediately brought to focus on a moment. So Sam's mom got him into water polo last year and it's really taken hold. He's a 10 year old. He loves to swim and he's into this new sport. Um, so he had his first game after months and months and months of, of hard practice. And I took him, this was in a trip to Pennsylvania. The trip was on a Sunday morning. It was early and uh, it was, it was, you know, a pretty exhausting trip to be honest. And that's what I was thinking about sort of getting there, getting there safely, thinking about the day when we pulled into the high school lot, and parked, I thought, oh, we're here. All right, now we can relax. Well, that was the very same moment for the first time in the car ride where he felt, oh my gosh, this is really happening. Mm -hmm. And instead of just quietly sitting there, I go, how you doing, buddy? I almost did it as a habit, not with not with intention. He goes, actually, I'm feeling a little nervous. Mm -hmm. And I took off my seatbelt and I turned around and I was just so happy that he told me. Mm -hmm. 
I said, okay, well, you know, let's talk about that. What makes you nervous? He's like, well, it, I mean, there's an enormous high school where they had the pool access to the pool. He hadn't done it before. And he said, I'm afraid I'm going to mess up. Mm-hmm. I said, those are two really brave things that you said. I don't think you're going to mess up because here's why here's all the practice you've done. Um, you know, it's going to feel once you get in the pool, just like any other thing, I, I know that, but you'll see when you get in there. So let's go do that together. And it's, it takes a brave kid to admit when he or she's nervous, mm-hmm. you know, that's the talking about your feelings. So let's go have some fun. And we got out of the car and he saw his coach who had just pulled up and immediately he felt even more comfortable because right. that was that familiarity and like, okay, now I got my, my coach, I got my parent. And then mm-hmm. we, once he saw one of his best friends, it was on mm-hmm. the nervousness was gone, but you know, that's, that was a, him talking about his feelings, but also him having the confidence and the safe space to talk about his feelings. And I was really proud about that. Yeah. And you spent a lot of time creating and cultivating that space for him to do that. Um, so I, I want to, we'll be kind of jumping all over the place. You wrote a children's book. You used to write for the Associated Press. Um, we have re- read many children books, right, sweetie? Oh, yeah. And then there's, it's funny because if if I look at your book, I'm like, oh, it's what's great about it is it's a very simple theme. Big problems, little problems. I love it. That's what's great about children's books is the simplicity of it. And there's a part of me like, oh, this is easy. I could do this. I can write a children's book. And I wonder if you can speak to the idea. By the way, I don't really think I can. <laughs> um, and it, it reminds me of like, this is kind of a silly thing, but when our kids were toddlers, we would like do the big, thick cardboard books yeah. and it would be like Red Fox, White Polar Bear. Like that was the book. And then say written by, I'm like, I could probably write that one. <laughs> I don't know if I can write one that actually has meaning behind it. So when you start with a blank screen in front of you and you decide that you want to write a children's book, can you speak? I assume it was harder than you thought. Is my assumption correct? Actually, it was every bit as hard as I thought it would be. Mm. And why? Uh, I, well, a couple of things. First of all, you know, in my last job, I was, I was smiling to myself as you were saying that because I, a friend of mine got to know this about me. If somebody would come by and say, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, get, I'll, I'll get that done. That'll be easy. I would cringe and because nothing is easy. I expect things to be harder than I don't mean be dour. Mm-hmm. I just mean the the thing the number of things you can't control are enormous, even if you think you've owned something. And so build in, you know, a, a higher threshold for frustration and disappointment and build that in that's in your time and your expectations. And so my friend, when somebody would say, Oh, that's gonna be easy, he he even he started saying, Don't ever say that, you're gonna jinx it. <laughs> so in that sense, I I didn't think it was going to be, but also I I'd never done this before. And it's a it's an immensely competitive, crowded yeah. space. I mean, you're thinking about something that seems so innocuous, writing a kid's book, right? Well, like everything else, there's a lot of people trying to do it. And to do so as a first timer without that, you know, running head start, that credibility in a pandemic where book publishing, you know, tanked for a long time, all those things were working against me. So I did expect it to be hard, but I had faith in the story. Mm-hmm. Most of what I do in life and most of what I teach and most of when I, you know, work on a piece of business, sell a piece of business, it comes back to the story. That's how I think. And so that part I felt comfortable with. I was daunted by the process. Um, so I, I worked with a consultant myself named Rob Broder, who ha- had his own printing press and had written children's books and edited books. And he became a counselor to me. And we just batted around ideas. I really felt like the story was in good place. And it was. We ended up largely where we started in terms of structure and flow, but he understood the pattern of, of not just the, the book, but also the, the industry. And so we got it in good shape. And then initially he submitted the scripts because that was part of what I was owning. Todd was this frustration. Like, I don't, this is not my day job. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to get super frustrated about a book that deals with lessening your frustrations. <laughs> and if somebody comes back to me and says, your spacing and your font size don't meet our specification, can you please resubmit it in the format? I'm like, I, I just could tell that wasn't going to work for me. So I was more worried about the process than the substance of it. And when initially um, it wasn't moving as fast as I would have liked, again, I'm a guy who gets things done, certainly tries to, and I'm a former AP White House guy, like, let's go. My, my brain and my voice is saying, let's go. And during the pandemic, when it wasn't moving that fast, I researched uh, publishers that are, who are still accepting children's books manuscripts during a pandemic <laughs> return. <laughs> yeah. And such a list popped up. And then I screened it for ones that didn't fit teen lit and minority authors and so forth. And it got down to about 10. And I went back to my, my guy. I said, what do you think about this list? He's like, this is a great list. 
this overlaps and somewhat with our first list, but really what you need to do is I think it'd be better coming from you. Mm-hmm. You just, that you're the way that you say it, it's going to be first person authentic. I, I think it'll land better. And so I, I did all this work on my own time and I, I one publisher Tilbury house publishers in, in Maine wrote back and said, um, we have a small team. It's me and my wife and our team. And we get a ton, a ton of manuscripts and we sit around a table and we pour a cup of coffee and we read them. Mm-hmm. And when we got done reading yours, we said, yeah, we mm-hmm. want to make that book. Mm-hmm. And I was just walking through the park here and I just almost stopped and cried. I'm like, mm-hmm. that's what you need. You need to read one person. And so that was two years ago. That was two years ago to get when the yes happened. Yeah. Then it was them finding the illustrator who's done a marvelous job with the book, giving her a lot of time to finish up other projects and get to this, then revisions and you know printing supply chain issues all of that. And now we're, we're sitting here and it's, it's about to come out on the market in, in May. So it, it was hard, uh, but tremendously personally fulfilling. Mm. Yeah. That's, it, that's part of the rewarding part of traditional publishing is like, I'm, you know, I'm listening to your story and hearing your story, but obviously overlapping mine, which that same, you know, experience my agent would say, Kathy, it just takes one person and you want that one person to really want it. Like you don't want someone who's like, maybe you want them to be like, yeah, this is meaningful to me. And I see something in this. And, and that's hard because that means we're going to get a ton of rejection. Um, there's just no way around it. Like talk about something I shared with my kids every day. I'm like, want to hear my three rejections today? Um, (laughs) which it's, you know, to have like, but a sense, like you said to your, the bottom line that you, you know, shared is that you had faith in the story, you know, you knew it was meaningful to you and you knew that it would be something that resonates with others. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to jump into your AP White House time because it's obviously so interesting to me. I know it is to Todd too, but I'm, I sometimes have to really stay away from politics because I get it. May, I get really, um, what would you say, Todd? Um, overly invested. Start yelling in the kitchen. Um, I get, you know, it's as if I think I can do something about it. Um, but what I want to ask you is, can you give us like what your day was like? And I know you were under a few administrations, but what what do you what did you do? Yeah. Well, so thank you for that. You know, my primary job every day was to cover the president of the United States in every aspect of what he was doing with a a team that I was either part of or eventually a team that I led to make sure in every instance that was possible that the stories were incredibly clear, that we were first and that we never, ever made a mistake. That was my job. And then when you when you got done with the day and you left the White House, your reward was that you get to start it all over again tomorrow (laughs) against the most competitive press corps I think in, in America and, you know, incredibly driven, smart, uh, people whose job it is to, to, you know, to, to unearth the news. That's why they call it news is, is it has to be new. And, but the AP had this extra, at least that's how we thought of ourselves, this extra responsibility to really lead and be the first, that's what the AP was known for. And so that was my job. And it went in a hundred different directions. I covered, you know, announcements of the Nobel Peace Prize. I covered, you know, wildfires in Florida. I covered secret trips to to war zones. I covered mundane uh, sitting in a van while the president, you know, played golf or you know went to went to a wedding. It was all of it. It was all everything that really happens in public life goes through the White House, and sometimes it goes through on the same day. Now. You know, that sounds really messy and complicated, and it was, but we did ultimately through the day pick a focus. These are the things that are most important that are happening here right now. This this can be dispensed with with a couple of paragraphs in a brief, and that's really not that important. And so we went through that process all the time. And when I started there, I was covering the last two years of President Bush, didn't know what I was doing. Hmm. But again, the, the bureau chief in Washington put me on that team. Uh, because she believed and had evidence of my ability to tell stories. How do you take the actions and the policies and the politics and the dynamism and the craziness of the White House and translate that to millions of people? It, it's a skill set. Yeah, it's a skill set. And so that was what she saw in me. Now, all the rest of it, the subject matter expertise, particularly on foreign affairs, um, military affairs, all of that I had to learn. And but once you do, you you learn, you get better at it, you grow. And I was there for six years. So by the end, I was, I was pretty good at walking into the building and understanding 
what was likely to happen that day mm. and who to talk to and how to how to stay in command. And that's really when you're in your rhythm is when you walk in, um, not breathless, but with this anticipatory mindset of, I think I'm in a good place here. I've, I've sourced this place up. I understand how to write well. I know what's coming up. I've done my research. Now all we have to deal with is the incredible unexpected. Mm. So let's go do that and have right. some fun. The unpredictability. Did you... Um ever suffer or do you suffer from when you were in that, you know, I would say very interesting position professionally, imposter syndrome, like what am I doing here? And I say that because I still do it. I'm, you know, Kathy and I've been podcasting for 11 years and somebody will walk up to me and say, what do I do about my kid? I'm like, why is this person asking me? And it's because (laughs) we've been doing this for 11 years and we've been parents for 19 years or when I'm in a men's group and I've been leading these men's circles for a while there's always this part of me like, why am I the one leading this? So I just wonder, because I judge that you rose to as close to the top in your profession as you can, were you like, what am I doing here again? Absolutely. I mean, I even shudder to think about that because the answer is yes, it's, it's hell yes. I mean, I was 36 walking into the, the West Wing every day, mm. sitting in a small booth of with the AP White House team, extraordinary journalists who understood every verb and noun that was going to come out of the president's mouth and when and, and what, the, what the, the, the pause in the third sentence was really the news. And, and I was like, I can't believe how much I have to learn about this place. What the hell am I doing here? So, yeah. Um, and, and look, there was a reason why I was sort of the junior person on that four-person team and, and doing a lot of the smaller stuff. It's because I had to earn my way. Uh, but I knew deep down that I could report and I could write and that this is really important, Todd. Nobody was going to drive me harder than me. Mm-hmm. That's that's what the bureau chief knew, I think, if you had to distill it. This guy can really tell stories, and man, is he driven. My dad would say to this, yeah, he, he felt like an imposter because my dad and stepmom came and visited me right before I started. And I remember this breakfast, and they're like, you just looked like a nervous wreck. You didn't even eat. And we just looked at you like, you got this. But you're all, he, my dad says, you're always running scared. You, you run like somebody's chasing you because you, you, you've got to figure something out. And if it's, how the hell would you understand how to cover a president before you even started? Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, you don't work at the AP. <laughs> they yeah. expect you to understand on day one. And so, yeah, that, but, you know, look, the other time that happened was, was interestingly, ironically, towards the end when I became the chief correspondent. Both my boss had left to oversee the economic meltdown of 2008, so he stayed within the um, the AP, but had a larger editing role. And then his successor left a couple of years later, and so I became the chief correspondent. And to me, that was my colleagues in the booth that we sat in said, "It's a natural. You're a natural for this. You've been doing this for years. We almost kind of see you that way as you step into the role." But I knew there was going to be something different. And the next day, when I showed up, uh, you know. Uh, David Axelrod and, and uh, some of these other you know White House staff people for President Obama, they they did look at me differently. Mm-hmm. Just as soon as the and now he's the chief correspondent. That's how Washington works. I was imbued with this extra title, and I remember we were on some trip like the next day, and, and President Obama singled me out. We we're at a deli, and he was getting a Cuban sandwich or something. He's like, "Feller, what do you want? You're not going to get anything." I'm like, "Why would he be doing this now?" I I, I was just as important yesterday mm. as I am today. Well, no. In in the Washington world, I had moved up, and I'm like, wow, they really see me differently now. Am I ready to step into these footsteps of these giants who have had this job? Um, and but ultimately, the way you get around any of that stuff is just be yourself. Mm. Just be yourself, and that's what I do. That's what I always tried to do. Mm. Yeah, and you know, I can so see how when you are getting that attention, how you know, and it sounds like just from your stories that you always had your feet on the ground about it. But then it can go the other way from imposter syndrome to uh, I'm grandiosity. Yeah, grandiosity. Yeah. I'm deserving of this, and you know, it can can shift fast. But the um, I, question about just the work in itself it, is your job different based on the administration and I know that sounds like I guess I'm wondering like you know because you were able to be in two different administrations like did your work feel different or did your work remain the same you were just covering what you were seeing and experiencing so I covered as you said President Bush and President Obama Bush 43 Mm -hmm. The, the job was the same in terms of although my role increased during that window the job was the same, right? Your job is to is to cover the presidency with with alacrity and authority and and lead lead the way. Um, but the 
but how it felt there absolutely mm -hmm. changed mm -hmm. because um, you know people think about you know two very different guys, very mm -hmm. different guys, mm -hmm. um, different parties, um, divergent um, policy views, of course. But it's what people don't see is the rhythm of the place. You know, the the rhythm of the place was just different when it went from Bush to Obama, and so and and I had to get used to a whole new set of people and dynamics and when they do the briefings and should, can, is the best time to grab the key source you need when he's having a cigarette on the driveway or a phone call first thing in the morning, like all of that stuff changed based on the, the tone set by the president mm -hmm. and, you know, his chief of staff and his team. And you had to adjust to that. And then sometimes just when you got into a rhythm, somebody left a job, totally. and the press secretary changed and there's a whole new dynamic there. So in that sense, there was a constant sense of change. But ultimately, when again, when it kind of became overwhelming is, look, you know, I, I had a guy who I took advice from who used to cover the AP and I called him for advice. He said, write down what the president says and report it well and report it fast. I'm like, OK, well, as my tenure went on, I'm like, it's actually more complicated than that, mm -hmm. because that might be what people think about the AP. But what you're doing your job really well, it's heavily infused with your understanding, your analysis of the place your ability to make the complicated simple. So it was harder than that. But this guy also said something that I'll never forget when I decided to leave and leave journalism. He said, listen, Ben, there are two types of people who have done this work. There are the ones who understand in the moment, it was a marvelous life experience that cannot be replicated. Mm -hmm. Embrace it, love it, package it up and move on, do something else. And then there's the people that spend the rest of their lives trying to chase this. Whether they leave on their own, they get pushed out, they outgrow it, whatever it is, they're constantly trying to go and be the first person to ask a question at Air Force One. It's like the rest of life isn't going to feel like that. Mm -hmm. You know, even you might go on and do things that are even more fulfilling, but they're not going to feel there's only one job like this. So don't be that person. Mm. And I knew that already, but it was just interesting to hear from him because I've never tried to chase that ghost. And that's been really helpful for me. Oh, that's such a good that's a you know, in pop culture world, everybody talks about that with Michael Jackson, that he was always chasing thriller and that that is part of the reason that, you know, there's lots of reasons for his struggle. And, you know, we have a lot of history, but, you know, a lot of pop culture icons, they're always kind of chasing their the, the thing that was the greatest. And sometimes you have to accept something as the greatest and just go in a different direction to what's good today. Yeah. And also just real quickly on that, it, I, the part of the part of the reason there are lots of reasons why I left. But part of the reason why I left was to, to look at the job, no matter how grand it was, in the context of the overall frame of life. Yeah. And if you look at the overall frame of life and what we were talking about earlier with being present as a father, doing different things, writing with passion about personal projects, um, you know, being able to, to watch a movie without checking my phone nine times. I, I didn't care about those things as problems when I was 37 covering the president. I got to cover the president. Now they bother the hell out of me. Right. You know, but they happen, but they do. But so in that sense, it's not good. It's great because life has gotten much more balanced. Yeah. There are trade-offs. Well, and as I was listening to you talk to Chris and Sean, there's one moment where I was kind of inspired by you while at the same time trying not to compare, even though I'm a comparison machine. It's just the way I'm wired. Um, I, were you two years into Obama or four years into Obama when you left? Four years in. Four years in. Yeah, I covered so, his first term. And and you chose to leave, right? You didn't get pushed yeah. out. So, right. first of all, I think that that's inspiring. And you know, speaking on behalf of Kathy and I, we're big fans of President Obama. And to leave his space would be a really, I judge, would be a very hard decision. Um, and I say this on the heels of I've been working for the same company for twenty seven years, and there's always this part of me being like, Am I too complacent? Am I too? used to it? Is this just boring and stale? And there's days where that's absolutely true. And maybe it's because I um, value security more, and there's no right or wrong to this, but I value security and you are probably have some more adventuresome traits in you. But I just want to say when I heard you talk to Chris and Sean about that, it just gave me pause to kind of reflect and reframe how I choose to go about my business and what direction I choose to go in. Because um, you know, I've not risen to the level that you have in your profession versus me, who's a sales rep, but for you to kind of go out on top on your terms, I think is very exceptional. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that, sweetie? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, that's, that's, uh, deeply appreciated and, and actually really affirming, uh, Todd. So not a lot of things scare me, but one thing is I've, I have learned that scares me is staleness. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, the, the sense that, um, that you, you could feel a plateau happening and you don't, you don't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Now, I say that with an enormous caveat that you have to be in a, in a position of luxury to say, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to do something else. When I say luxury, it's a first world problem, right? Mm-hmm. That you've put enough money aside and you feel like you're employable and you've, you've got enough management of your responsibilities that you can do that. But if those things are true, then to me, that sense of that cyclical feeling just is not a good feeling. So that's why I left the education beat, went into the bureau chief and said, I'd like to do something different. Mm-hmm. I didn't know she was going to put me on the White House team. But I appreciate she appreciated my assertiveness and service, and and, it, and I was rewarded with it. When I left the the White House and looked journalism, I didn't even know I was going to leave journalism. But I I went out and explored a new path. It took me a few months, and I ended up working for a firm for a very long time called Mercury, where it's a strategy firm. And they said there's a market value for what you know, mm. for understanding the intersection of commerce and business and politics, and to make sense of the complicated for people. And if you can find a way to convince clients that you can help them with the problems, you can do really well because you have a tremendously interesting background. And and so I did that for a long time. And for the first part of that long time, people said, don't you miss it? Don't you miss it? And I'm like, I think you're thinking of seeing me on TV asking the first question and the president knowing my name mm-hmm. or seeing me at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Those things are really cool. But there are a lot of other moments where there's tremendous tension and loss of sleep mm-hmm. about what I was doing. And that's that's going to be the rest of my life. It doesn't go away. The higher you get, it only goes with you. And so, you know, I chose a different life. And then I decided, you know, I'm going kind of faster in my story, but I was at Mercury for nine years. And this year, coming out of the pandemic and then 2021, I felt that same dynamic happening for lots of reasons. But when you feel stale and or uh, frustrated, plateauing, um, and the world is getting smaller, your professional world is getting smaller, your challenger is getting smaller, and you like to think of yourself as a big thinker, mm-hmm. what the hell do you do about the gap? You know, you got to try to close it somehow. So I tried to close it internally. It wasn't working. And I stepped back. I'm like, why am I so worried about this? I've been here nine years. I've done very well. I've made partner. I've got a whole new network now on the business side. I live in New York City. I've got the Washington connections. You've done this before, Ben. Do it again. Mm-hmm. You know. And so that's the period I'm in right now. The children's book happened to come to fruition and I was on the verge of publishing right in this window. So it's kept me very busy. But I'm on this renewed sense of purpose and, and, and happiness because I'm going to be working for quite a while. I got a lot of bills to pay and I'm, I'm, I'm intellectually curious. And so I can't, I, I needed to make a change. And so when you say it's exceptional, I appreciate that. Um, I don't, I'm too close to it to see it that way. I see it as necessary mm-hmm. uh, because otherwise you're the guy who's like, how was work? I don't really want to talk about it. Let's talk about something else. Well, that's a big part of your life. Mm-hmm. You know, I want, I can't wait for somebody to say, how's work? And I say, I do want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to talk about it very long because you'll still probably be bored. <laughs> yeah. But if you want to know, I'm going to tell you what I'm working on and who I'm working with and how it's different. And you start to feel that energy come back again. And I think that's part of just maturing and understanding what you need to be successful. Mm. Oh, I love that. So Ben, I, I'm going to ask for your expertise right now. Um, when it comes to journalism today, okay, because you probably still know people who are doing the work, yeah. and I have a great respect for um, journalists, and I'm so grateful to them for being just another component of making sure that we have all the, you know, just, you know, fourth, you know, what do they call it, fourth estate? Is that what we call yes. it? Yes. Right. And so I'm so grateful, especially in the time that we're in. So I, I guess I don't want to force you to be optimistic, but I'm wondering if you could offer me some solace and that journalism is... Um, uh, you know, alive and well, and that there's still wonderful people out there doing, you know, great work and that we're in good hands, or maybe you can balance it out for me that for the most part, yes, but just, I just want to know how you feel about journalism right now. Yeah, no, I, I think you absolutely have reason to be optimistic. Okay. Full stop. I think the, the two main reasons I think that, and I do know a lot of the people who are doing it. So I have a personal vested reason for saying, I know these folks, they're, they're, they're grinding away. They're doing amazing work. But the two main reasons are, first of all, there's, as far as I can see, for our lifetimes at least, there will always be a demand for the story. Yeah. Even if the, the budget shrink, the newsrooms, which they have, um, the uh, diversification of the media isn't what we want it to be, the shrinking of the platforms, the attention spans, all these things that work against us, you got to have the story. People want to know what happened in, here in Brooklyn with the shooting yeah. and why and what does it mean and, and how is the new mayor handling it, right? People want to know constantly about, you know, what's happening in Russia, Ukraine on month two and how does it affect their lives? People want to know 
sports. I want to know, you know, what the hell happened with Will Smith. I still don't really understand that moment, right? Somebody's got to tell the story. So that's not, that, those are individual people who are working hard to unearth facts and context and color and put it together in a way that finds your phone, mm -hmm. finds your doorstep. And so, yes, in that sense, journalism, I think will always be here because the basic need and demand to inform people will be there. And the second reason is, is that, you know, at least in this moment, the, the culture in America around reporting is back on the upswing. Good. There's at least not a hostile, daily, confrontational attack against reporters who are doing their jobs as being enemy of the people just because you don't agree with them. Right. Um, and that, that, you know, that, that gets into the, sort of the change in politics right now. But I think the, the people, the culture, and the demand all lead to, to optimism. And I think, I guess I'll add one more, Kathy, which is that, you know, consumers like you, mm -hmm care yeah. and think about the state of journalism and, and are discerning about it. And that's, that's important too. You don't take it for granted. Yeah, no, it's, um, you know, I think Todd and my quest for years and years and years and continues to be is like, how do we read all the different things? How do we feel like we're getting the information from a place that's knowledgeable? How do we, and then sometimes you read a Buzzfeed article, like I'm not saying we're always on the up and up. It's just a, right. I, the, our intention, and I think most people, is I really want to know really what's going on. I don't necessarily need to be fed things that make me feel good. Just at least give me the information so I feel like I'm starting from a place of truth, you know, and that I know that word has gotten messy. Um, it, it's just, but I like what the thing that you said that made my heart get, get a little, you know, like I felt good is that you said that it's back, it's on an upswing or that, you know, journalists are maybe feeling a little more, um, grounded in what they're doing and that there's maybe a little more support. So that makes me feel good. So let's have a little bit of fun here. Oh, um, ben, haven't we been having fun this whole time? Well, a little bit. I've, I've like forgotten we're in an interview. I feel like I'm at a coffee Kathy shop. Kathy and I uh, have a different uh, podcast called Pop Culturing and we do yes. all these movies. So Kathy and I are like movie freaks. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and I just did a Google search on top 25 movies about journalists and yeah. I, 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 do you, Kathy and I are, you know, so I only wrote down a half of them because a half I'd never heard of, or at least I've never seen. Um, so I don't know the best way to do it. Part of me wants to just list a bunch, but that sounds boring. Do you, are you going to ask him whether or not they're true? No, no, no. I want to know if Ben appreciates movies on journalism. And if so, what are a few that you think you hold in high regard? Before you answer that question, I will say Kathy and I have been falling asleep to the movie Spotlight <laughs> Each of the last four nights because it's I... It's my favorite movie of all time. It's like the, you know, there's so many reasons to love that movie. Michael Keaton is just a beast in that movie, mm -hmm. as is everybody else's, um, and the content of what that story tells. And but, the change that they create. And the change that they create. It's got it all. Yeah. Um, so, Ben Feller, what are a few of your top favorite journalism movies? Well, I, it's funny. I just wrote down three so I wouldn't forget while you were asking the question. And one of them was Spotlight. Yeah, so that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty telling. Um, since you mentioned Michael Keaton, I will commend you to watch a movie that came out in the 90s called The Paper. Oh, Todd loves The Paper. I, Kathy is not on board with The Paper, and I, I love The Paper. I, it's not that I'm not on board. I anything Michael Keaton does, I'm in, and I've seen it. It just Well, let me let Ben talk. Tell me why we should like that movie. Well, first of all, you know, family show here, but but Michael Keaton's meltdown at the end <laughs> with the with the sublime usage of the F word there yes. about defining <laughs> life in New York City will resonate with me forever. But also, you know, I saw that in, in the twenties when I was in my twenties when I was in uh, when I was a young reporter, and so many things they get right. That the constant, you know, conversation, the running late for the editorial meetings the dark humor, the, the constantly, you know, looking for change for the vending machine, all of it was just newsroom dynamic. And, and, you know, at one point, Randy Quaid says, why are you giving me the grunt work? I'm a columnist. He's like, you're not a columnist, you're a reporter who writes long. You know, it's like, <laughs> what? it's like the average was like, why is that funny? I'm like, oh, that's so funny. Like, what a great line to put in the script. So, um, and I also think about when, you know, Michael Keaton's character was up on the top of the roof talking to Henry Duvall, and he's like, hey, I got, I got a wife, and it's more or less hours, more money, and he puts his hand on his shoulder. He's like, you do have a problem, Henry, but it's your problem. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've, I've thought about that so often in life. You're like, what the hell are you telling me for? Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not your mentor. Mm -hmm. You know, go right. So, uh, you know, I, I love that movie. And then, um, you know, 
I don't care. It's like people say it's your favorite movie, and I always put Godfather up there. And that's like, I don't mm-hmm. care that it's predictable. There's a reason. It's mm-hmm. magnificent. I can't wait for my son to be old enough to watch it. So in that sense, I put all the president's men there because mm-hmm. it was so well captured. Mm-hmm. It's almost like it's it's a taut movie mm-hmm. in the pacing of it, and going back and knocking on the doors and you know deep throat in the garage. But also the the number of knocking on doors and the rewriting and these two journalists going at each other. You know, are you sure you have it? We don't have it. Are you sure we have it? And then just the crusty, you know, Jason Robards playing mm-hmm. Ben Bradley, mm-hmm. you know, at the end when he's like, go home, get two hours sleep and come back and do it again. Only thing that's resting on this is sort of the fate of democracy and <laughs> the rest of our world. And they just look at him like, yeah, that would actually be something <laughs> mm-hmm. Washington Post editor would say. So those are three mm. That come to mind. Sweetie, anything come to mind for you? Well, just that on All the President's Men, that was one I was so excited to watch with my kids. And I was hoping, you know, because it made a huge impact on me. And I was hoping that, you know, because it's old, you know, mm-hmm. like, will this hold up? And my oldest daughter really liked it. Um, and also just realizing from that movie what journalism, at least at that time, really was. You know what I mean? That, like you just said, the knocking on the doors, but like, you know, convincing people to talk to you, convincing people to trust you, building relationships. I don't think we think about that component. Um, I don't know. I just love that. So I'm trying to think of another one. The The post was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, but I don't rewatch it like yeah. I do the other ones you just mentioned. Right. Um, and I, I don't know. And then there's a lot of journalism incorporated into, you know, like I, this is so cheesy, but like the Pelican Brief. I like, like the Pelican Brief. Mm-hmm. I don't know. If, but there's, you know, it's a John Grisham book, whatever. But there's this component to, again, the journalistic aspect of how you cover something that's so close to the White House, even if it's fictional, there was mm-hmm. I just really enjoyed it. So we, you, we all want to be Denzel Washington, right? in Pelican Brief. Yes, <laughs> we all we all want to be. And then I remember when the editors like go, you've got two days to figure this out. Go to your cabin in the woods, and he's got this beautiful cabin, and of course he knows how to use the shotgun. And Julia Roberts shows up. I'm like, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't have that cabin in the woods when you you know trying to figure out a story. Yeah. Yeah, no one's telling me to leave and go figure it out on my own time. Do you think Sam is going to be able to appreciate The the Godfather? I say that because um, I love The Godfather. I don't know. I I, I always think of it as more of a guy's movie, and I know all the women out there screaming that love The Godfather. And I have three daughters, and I'm worried that if, I'm not even going to say when, if they choose to watch it because there's so many other things that they want to watch, that it may not translate. I just wonder if you think Sam is going to appreciate it the way a lot of us do. I don't know. I, it's, it kind of goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation about listening yeah. to him. You know, I I was really excited for him to appreciate Star Wars, and it was a you know seminal movie for me and cultural movie for me in the seventies. And the first time we watched it, he was kind of like. I kind of get it. And then there's a trash compactor scene that you seem really excited about daddy, but uh, you know, and now I I just let it breathe and let it go. And Mm. he's an enormous, enormous Star Wars Mm. fan. So I think sometimes it's like, look, you have expectations. You'll, you, you introduce and you see what happens. I, I do. I think he'll get a kick out of what I get a kick out of in scenes like that. Like this is a big movie for my daddy and, and you know, he's got to be old enough to appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll build in some good food around it. So that'll add to the excitement. Uh, but yeah, I, I could see him, especially as he gets into Godfather 2 and thinking about Michael and Sonny and, mm-hmm. you know, Fredo. And, boy, we should do a whole conversation on this. Uh, and, you know, these are these are icons mm. uh, of the time. So I hope so. I, he's I'm certainly going to give it a good shot with him. Let's leave it mm. there, you know. Well, I will say that one of the best parts of parenting for me has been as the girls have gotten older, because we showed them Star Wars really early too, like when they were five. So of course they're not going to get it. They're going to be like, you know, there's like, they feel the energy of it, but they don't get it all. But as now that my girls are older, like my, you know, my um, almost 18 year old is now watching Sex in the City for the first time, like the going through each episode. And we have conversations about it every day. And so it's like, she's watching it on her own. You know, I'm watching Euphoria on my own. And we're kind of, because these are not these, you know, they're very graphic, both of them. And so we're yeah. not watching it together always but the conversations that we have about it and then when the kids were younger when we started watching friends together and we could have these conversations it really is a connector in our family pop culture is such a big connector and even and i love what you said about sometimes the things that todd and i are psyched about they are not they are like that was not funny at all but even that's good conversation like 
what was it missing? And mm-hmm. you know, what, so I just think that no yeah. matter what he thinks, it's the process. And then, you know, Ben, I think the bottom line is when I tell my girls things that have meant a lot to me, they just know me better. Mm-hmm. You know, even if they don't like my show, right. they know me better. So it's just been so fun. It's it's a great point. That's a wonderful story. And, you know, I was thinking about very recently, maybe a week or so ago, we were walking up the sidewalk here to come back home. And he said to me out of the blue, so when you first watched Star Wars, when you were a, when you were a kid, did you totally understand it? Totally. And I said, immediately, I'm like, well, I understood I really felt like it was in outer space, especially when they go into the tunnels at the end and Darth Vader's on Luke's tail. And, Luke's, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was I suspended disbelief. And I immediately thought, like, I went right into the conversation with them almost as peers. Yeah. How did I think about as opposed to saying, like, what an interesting question, especially since I haven't talked to you about Star Wars in two weeks. Like, why are you thinking about it right now? Mm-hmm. But he was thinking now about how much he understands the dynamic between all the different movies and the sequencing mm-hmm. and the characters and he's like, wow, I wonder, now I get it. I was like, I wonder if he got it because mm-hmm. he saw it when he was really young. What a fascinating question. Yeah. You know, but I'm so used to those little moments with him that I went right to answering the question as opposed to saying, well, that's pretty interesting, you know? And so now that I, I do understand the story a lot more, I'm like, hell no. Right. I was just a kid. Like, what is this movie? A long time ago in a galaxy, but like, I was just sucked in mm-hmm. to the sci-fi, you know, and I wanted to see it a hundred times. Hmm. I know, I know. Um, go ahead, sweetie. I, I just want to—I know we're closing, but I have one more question. What did you think about the Mandalorian? Do you watch that? Do you watch the Boba Fett show? Yes, uh, the Mandalorian uh, I liked a lot. We watched that as a family, and it had the added benefit, unless my pandemic fog is is not right here. It, it had the benefit of coming at a really important time yeah. where you know everybody was closed in. We we couldn't go to the movies. We were jonesing for new things, and they brought this star Wars series into the house with a kid who really loved it, you know? And so then you got the cool Mandalorian and, you know, baby Yoda. And, and yeah, I was, I was, I mean, I didn't, wouldn't put it in the top tier of pop culture, but it, it it was really, it was a fun thing to look forward to um, at the time. I haven't watched the, the latest Boba Fett one. He did mm-hmm. that with his mom. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's so many that have come out totally. um, in the Marvel Star Wars, you know, in the last year that I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit, you know, satiated, I guess, but I'll probably get to it. But yeah, I did like the Mandalorian. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, well, in closing, I, I just want to say, I guess a little bit on more sincere point. Um, I'm guessing Sam's really lucky to have you as a dad and as um, a 49 year old man who, who leads men in healthy masculinity. Um, Sam is about to undergo a very interesting time in his life when what it means to be a man is pretty warped. And I, I always say like, you know, we've been lied to since we were four years old by society, by billboards, by all these things, what it means to be a man. Um, and I just want to like offer you and anybody else that's listening one resource and it's kind of a, it's not dated, but it's a documentary that we, Kathy and I have screened that we've screened in men living. It's called the mask you live in. It's probably a little bit early for Sam to Maybe watch it now, 13. wait yeah. till he's 13, okay. but it just blows up the idea of what it means to be a man in a really important, impactful way. So I just, um, honor you for raising this young man. I judge that. Most of the problems in this world are a result of men behaving like immature boys. And if we can raise young men in a very positively masculine way, then most of these problems in our world will go away much more quickly. So um, you're on a journey with Sam. I think he's lucky to have you. It sounds like you're lucky to have him. And I'm just glad that you wrote this book. Me too. It's really, really wonderful. So, Well, that's, um, again... Tremendously rewarding. I, I soaked in every word you said, and I want to say that both Sam's mom and I um, really believe in empathy, compassion, communication, diversity, and that and that being um, a young man means um, understanding um, the need to to be honest and to be emotional mm-hmm. and to be responsible and to have compassion, and that those are um, those are not gender specific. Mm-hmm. Those are those are part of being a, a, a young um, human being mm-hmm. who's trying to find his place in the world. And so um, it, it does take work, but it's also a real natural for both of us and and for Sam. Mm-hmm. And uh, but but I appreciate what you said. This is the most fulfilling part about this book so far has been. Uh, I thought for a long time it was going to be 
seeing it and feeling it and introducing it to my son, which happened and it was great. But the best part so far has been the reaction of other people, mm -hmm. how they have found something in it that maybe even I didn't foresee. Mm -hmm. And you guys have just added to that today. So I really appreciate it. Mm. The name of the book is Big Problems, Little Problems, written by our new friend, Ben Feller. It is available when? It's available for pre-order now. So when this goes to air and um, it can be found anywhere, your audience buys the books. Small shops, local shops, the big boys. Um, it's available. Just uh, Google Big Problems, Little Problems. And it will be in stores and being delivered uh, May 31st is the new uh, official release date. Wonderful. Ben Feller, thank you very much for joining us. And we will catch you all next week on another episode of Zen Parenting Radio. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have appreciated or enjoyed a decade of Zen Parenting Radio podcasts, please tell a friend or leave a five-star review. We are always grateful for your support. If you want more Zen Parenting, consider joining Team Zen, pre-ordering Kathy's Zen Parenting book, or subscribing to Zen Parenting Moment. You can find these opportunities and more at zenparentingradio.com. If you want to connect through social networking, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Keep trucking, and we will talk to you again next week.